Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus, and welcome to Shia Jeshub. This is Pastor Greg Scalzo of Shia Jeshub Christian Tabernacle in Madison, Connecticut. I'm here with my wife, Patty, inviting you to join us as we continue the Bible study on heavenly authority. We ended up our last program discussing just who the phrase, the sons of God, is referring to in Genesis chapter 6. Patty, maybe you should reread verses 1 to 4 to familiarize those who were not with us last time. We are studying at this point the events that brought about God's judgment of the flood on the world of that time. We previously saw that the wickedness of man was great and the intent of the thoughts of his heart only evil continually. We saw that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and that the earth was filled with violence. And in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 4 we read, now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And in our last program, we concluded that the term, the sons of God, did not refer to fallen angels as some think, but rather to humans, the men in that generation to whom the word of God had come. We saw how in the Old Testament, the term designated those who were in a covenant relationship with God even as in the New Testament it is used for believers in the Lord Jesus. And Greg, there is an interesting scripture in John chapter 10 that relates to this. In verse 33, the Jewish leaders were accusing Jesus of blasphemy because he was calling himself God's son. In verses 34 to 36 we read, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? The Lord was quoting there from the Old Testament scripture, Psalm 82, where it says in verse 6, I said, you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men, you will fall like every other ruler. And Patty, if our listeners read the entire psalm, they will see that it is a rebuke from God to those men whom he had placed in positions of great authority because they had not helped the weak and the oppressed or brought the light of God's word to those in darkness. So Jesus is saying in essence to the Jewish leaders, if these were called gods and the sons of the Most High in the scriptures, how much more can the Messiah be called God's son? And Jesus himself defines the way the terms gods and sons of God are used in John chapter 10, verse 35. They are those, quote, to whom the word of God came. Exactly. The fact that the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 are humans is confirmed by Luke chapter 3 in verse 38, which calls Adam the son of God. These are the pre-flood spiritual leaders whom God had appointed. 
They are the men who called on the name of Yahweh, as we studied in Genesis 4.26. They were the preachers of righteousness, as Peter referred to Noah in 2 Peter 2.5, to a corrupt generation to bring the word of the Lord. And the lineage from Adam through Seth to Noah, which is listed in chapter 5, comes immediately before this section we are studying in chapter 6, and probably includes a number of these sons of God. This lineage stands out in contrast to the lineage from Adam through Cain in chapter 4, which goes down to the murderous and polygamous Lamech. And it is also in contrast to those other sons and daughters of Adam who are mentioned only briefly in Genesis 5-4. And when we consider that contrast, the distinction mentioned in chapter 6, verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose, no longer seems cryptic. Greg, what about the giants or Nephilim mentioned in chapter 6, verse 4? The word Nephilim is also used in Numbers 13.33 concerning descendants of a man called Anak in the time of Moses. In verse 32, these are identified as men of great stature. So they are very tall men, and hence the translation giant. Genesis 6.4 is giving us additional information about conditions existing before the flood at the time of these marriages between the sons of God and the daughters of men. There were very large people in the world, and this should not surprise us. We saw the very old ages people were able to live to under the pristine pre-flood environment. It should be no surprise that they also grew larger and were stronger. They were indeed the mighty men of old, and most likely the exploits of what these humans could accomplish in the wonderful pre-flood world, when men were brighter and healthier, larger and stronger, were told by Noah and his family to the next generations, making them men of renown. So, Greg, you don't see the mention of giants as referring to some demonic hybrids separate from the descendants of Adam, but rather a description of many of the people of that day. That's right, and the text bears it out, because it tells us in verse 4 that these giants were also on the earth afterwards, that is, after the flood. And we just saw that, didn't we, with Anak and his sons at the time of Moses. And there is also Goliath, who lived later on in the time of David, as well as others whom the scriptures mention. Just as the fossil record tells us of much larger versions of some of the animals and plants we have today, which we believe to be from before the flood, so men were able to grow taller before the flood. But under the new harsh environment after the flood, taller was not necessarily better, nor able to be reached. Lung capacities were challenged and the whole creation generally became smaller, though there were still pockets of humans who grew to great statures for some time. And in a much more moderate way, we can appreciate the height discrepancies of humans even today. But we don't want to go any more off, to off topic. The important point for the study is that the sons of God in Genesis 6-2 are those who called on the name of Yahweh and to whom the word of God came. And many of these are tied into that lineage from Adam through Seth down to the blameless Noah in chapter 5. And there is an interesting fact that can be culled from all of this. 
many of the famous men and their offspring from Chapter 5 had to still be alive not long before the flood occurred. From the creation of Adam to the flood is 1,656 years. Yet Adam, the son of God, lived 930 of those years. Methuselah, the son of righteous Enoch, died the year of the flood. Thus these men and their children were certainly around at the time of these goings-on, and the knowledge of Yahweh must have been well spread as men began to multiply on the face of the earth. That's right. Now let's look at the transgression. Verse 2 reads in the New King James, The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Notice first, these men were in essence seated in heavenly realms because of their high calling. Second, they became guided by their flesh and desires. They saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And let's consider the implications of that phrase, the daughters of men. Well, you can see how it compares to the high position of their call, sons of God, with the low position of their motivation, of men. That's right. And even more, it indicates that the marriages were between believers and non-believers. These were the daughters of the ungodly, that is, in the tradition and example and possibly the lineage of Cain. These sons of God did not remain loyal to their spiritual call. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to 18 warns believers not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The entire Bible teaches against marrying strange or unbelieving husbands or wives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, a Christian woman is warned that the husband she decides to marry must belong to the Lord. Otherwise, the believing spouse will be unequally yoked. As Moses warned in Deuteronomy 22.10, You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together, two determined individuals pulling in different directions. And the Lord warned the Israelites in Exodus chapter 34, verses 15 to 16, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you, and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. And, Patty, the Hebrews didn't heed the Lord's command, and eventually it resulted in their captivity into Assyria and into Babylon. And even when they returned to rebuild Jerusalem, still many sinned by intermarrying with neighboring peoples, with their ungodly practices. We read about that in Ezra chapter 9. But Greg, I think we should caution at this point that when applying this principle of not marrying an unbelieving person to today, 
In New Testament times, it applies to the Christian who is making a marriage decision. If a believer is already married to an unbeliever who is willing to live with them, that person is instructed not to divorce, for the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. That's a good point, Patty. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. The Christians should believe the Lord for a mighty work of the Holy Spirit on the heart of their spouse. But the road for someone in that situation could be a very hard one. And there are a number of other pertinent scriptures that they should know, which there's not time to go into, into right now. Actually, Patty, Christian marriage would be a good topic for another series. And Lord willing, we will. What's important to this study, and it's a point that young people who are facing marriage in the future should take seriously, is how wrong it is to dilute or compromise your relationship with God by marrying someone who has not given their life over to the one whom you have made your Lord. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 5 to 8 and 11 through 12 states, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. What a privilege it is to study God's Word. If you have any questions, please write to us at Shia Jashub, P.O. Box 518, Brantford, Connecticut, 06405. Our Sunday services are at 10 a.m. in the upper room of the Madison Memorial Town Hall on Meeting House Lane in Madison. Come and join us as we worship the Lord and study His Word together.